Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number 599, June the 1st, 1996, £1.50. I can't believe that this is episode 22 for the year. Um, we're in June now. Well, we'll be in June when you hear this podcast and I just honestly, I say this every year. I think time goes faster when you get older, but I really don't know where this year's gone. I can't believe we're six months in already. Um, Starting the summer though, so that's good. Do love summer. Anyway, the uh, the cover stars for this week's Kerrang! There isn't one cover star. There's actually a load of people. So you've got the singers from Dog Eat Dog, Smashing Pumpkins, Terrorvision, Wild Hearts, Green Day, Reef, Radiance Machine, Skunk and Nancy. Um, and then the cover says, Choose the bill at Donington. Vote for the bands you want to see on the Kerrang! stage. Plus... Main stage heroes Sepultura and Ozzy on the hottest event of the year. Also, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain's Lost Songs Revealed. Free CD for every reader. Soundgarden, have they got news for you? Are you ready for the new Metallica album? Full review inside, plus Bon Jovi, Pearl Jam, Garbage, Mannix and Pantera. If you'd like to get in contact with us here, at Kerrangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrangback Issues, Twitter Kerrang Pod and email Issues at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to leave a review for us on Apple Music or Spotify, that would be absolutely wonderful. I would really appreciate it. Um, please leave us a good review because uh, there's no point in leaving us a bad review because that helps no one. And speaking of reviews, Metallica's Load is reviewed in this issue and episode of this podcast. Let's crack on with this week's issue. So... This issue was created with the following stimulants. Bush's London Astoria, Stormer and After Show Party. Bit of a blur, that. An evening with Ian Hislop. Triple espressos. A deluge of awards poll entries. Unfeasible amounts of champagne in the office. Linda's Cafe. McDonald's 100 yards from our new door. Our absent editor's driving lessons. Good luck, son. DJ Diamond Dave's extraordinary birthday bash. Utterly asshole. The Mighty Sensefield Live. Headline Hell and Deadline Hell, Tea with Paradise Lost, Chips with P Wet, the new Screaming Trees album. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We start this week's episode of the pod and issue of the magazine with news. Kurt Cobain duets with Courtney Love on a secret tape that has just sensationally surfaced in Seattle. The pair can be heard on a previously unheard version of the song Asking For It, which appeared in a different form on the last whole album, Live Through This, put out in 1994. Apparently this was the original version of the song recorded during the sessions for the whole album, but when Live Through This came out, Cobain's vocal contribution had been wiped from the mix. In fact, no one outside of Hull and their closest associates ever knew that Kurt had been on the track in the first place. And clearly, this would have remained the case had it not been for Marco Collins, music director for Seattle radio station KNDD. Collins got this tape of asking for it from undisclosed sources, although there are rumours that Courtney herself gave him a copy, and he has been playing it on the air to an incredible response. Says Collins, our phones have lit up every time we've played it. It's very popular. Holes label Geffen and management Q Prime Inc. both confirmed that Cobain did provide backing vocals on some tracks from Live Through This, but all his contributions were supposedly wiped from the final mix. 
Yet on this newly found version of Asking For It, Cobain can clearly be heard singing back up to love during the second verse. And at the end of the song, the pair sing, If you live through this with me, I swear that I will die for you. The fact that this was recorded only weeks before Cobain's tragic suicide in April 1994 makes all this more poignant. So far, no attempt has been made by anyone connected with Hole to stop KNDD from broadcasting this tape. But it remains to be seen whether other copies surface or whether the track is ever given a proper release. Manic Street Preacher's bassist Nicky Wire had to race against time to ensure he was fit enough to start the band's sellout UK tour last week. Wire tore a ligament in his shoulder just days before the tour kicked off in Glasgow and was forced to undergo intensive treatment to cure the problem. Fortunately, it worked, though Wire was forced to miss the Welsh Stars' appearance on the Later with Jules Holland show where the Manics used a session player to replace him when they played three numbers from new album Everything Must Go on the top-rated show. And as the band conclude their British tour, remaining dates London Kentish Town Forum May 29th, Newport Centre 31st, Norwich UEA June 1st, Leicester De Montford University 2nd, it's been confirmed that recent hit single A Design For Life has gone silver in the UK having sold an amazing 200,000 copies. To celebrate, the Manics have announced they'll be appearing at the Tea in the Park Festival in Glasgow on July the 14th. Metallica have finally announced the full details for a series of dates in the UK. As Kareem predicted two months ago, the San Franciscan superstars will be playing here during October. The dates are as follows. Birmingham NEC October 5th and 6th, Newcastle Arena 7th, Dublin Point 8th, London Earls Court 12th, Manchester Ninex Arena 15th and Sheffield Arena on the 16th. Tickets cost £17.50 for all shows, except Dublin, where they are £18 Irish pounds. They go on sale on May 31st from the relevant box offices and usual outlets. Please note that if you're booking by credit card, there will be a booking fee added onto the price. Support act on the tour will be acclaimed North Carolina Noise Monsters Corrosion of Conformity, who released new album Wise Blood through Columbia on August the 4th. Bon Jovi will have different unsigned British bands opening up on their forthcoming UK stadium tour, providing a unique opportunity for four young bands to make their mark. John Bon Jovi exclusively told Kerrang some time ago of his bold plan to give a handful of lucky young bands the chance to impress more than 50,000 fans. The whole operation to choose the bands has now been finalised and here's how it will work in Manchester and one of the two Milton Keynes shows. Bands from those areas will be asked to send in tapes to either a local radio station or newspaper. It will then be up to that radio station or newspaper to come up with a short list of five bands, from which the eventual winner will be chosen. The judging will be done through either listeners' votes or a specially selected judging panel. Here's where to send your tapes for the show at Milton Keynes Bowl on July the 6th. John Brett, Milton Keynes Citizen, Napier House, Auckland Park, Bletchley, Milton Keynes, MK1, 1BU. For the show at Manchester Main Road on July the 9th, Pete Mitchell's IQ Show. Key 103, Piccadilly Radio, 127131 The Plaza, Piccadilly Plaza, Manchester M14AW. The same system will apply for Milton Keynes Bowl July 7th and Glasgow Ibrox Stadium on the 11th. No decision yet on who will pick the bands for these dates. Paradise Lost vocalist Nick Holmes has raised more than £4,000 for charity after its 15 100 mile motorbike ride across the Australian outback thanks to Karain readers. Holmes risked his life on the hazardous journey just a couple of months ago to raise money for children with leukemia and he's delighted with a response from you lot. This is a real bonus. The money still keeps flooding in and fuses the front man. All the effort seems worthwhile now. 
If you still want to make a donation, send your cheque to Nick Holmes' Children with Leukemia Appeal, Care of Music for Nations, 333 Latimer Road, London, W10-6RA. Cheques postal orders payable to Nick Holmes Children with Leukemia, but don't send cash through the post. Holmes will present a cheque to the charity at London's Planet Hollywood on June 27th. Pearl Jam vocalist Eddie Vedder made a surprise appearance recently at a Chicago nightclub to sing happy birthday to basketball star Dennis Rodman. Vedder turned up at a controversial Chicago Bulls legend Rodman's 35th birthday bash at Crowbar in Chicago and surprised the Pack Club by getting up to sing, backed only by a harmonica player. Also in the audience was Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament, who like Vedder, is a basketball fanatic. Vedder's impromptu warbling isn't the only unusual musical event that Pearl Jam have been connected with recently. Incredibly, the Seattle superstars will join Soundgarden and Green Day in having weird versions of their songs included on a forthcoming album called The Moog Cookbook. The record is being put together by Roger Manning, one-time member of defunct San Francisco pop rockers Jellyfish, and musical partner Brian Kehu. It features well-known songs re-recorded on vintage synthesizers and keyboards, such as the world-famous Moog synth and Hammond organ. Pearl Jam's Evenflow, Black Hole Sun from Soundgarden and Basket Case from Green Day are all confirmed for inclusion. No UK release date has yet been set for the album. Hello America, it's American news. Starting this week with Lisa Johnson in LA. Foo Fighters guitarist Pat Smith and Hole's Eric Erlandson were both conspicuous when all-girl power pop punkettes Fluffy played last week at the Dragonfly in Hollywood. Smear was down at the front of the stage, staring up in apparent adoration at the British band. Close by him was Erlandson, who also seemed to be enjoying every second of the show. And what's this we hear about Smear taking time out to record with Fluffy while they were in town? Also appearing at the Dragonfly were the Swirlies, who hail from Boston, and their music sounds exactly like their name. And whilst the celebrity count might have been high for Fluffy, guess who dropped in to catch the swirlies? Iggy Pop. A serious jaw-hit-the-floor scenario. We now join Don Kay in New York. The Red Hot Chili Peppers have split up because they are burnt out and sick of touring. Well, that was the sensational report in the New York Post recently. So is it true? Nope. According to official sources, this rumour was a load of rubbish. The band are very happy and can't wait to start work on a new album as soon as their summer tour of Europe is finished. Where do these stories begin? Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament was in town to promote his Free Fish album out soon on Epic. The odd record is a collaboration between Jeff who plays guitar on this one, Tribe After Tribe frontman Robbie Robb and former Fastbacks drummer Richard Stuviard. Jeff threw out a couple of hints about Pearl Jam too. The band have recorded 22 songs but haven't chosen which tracks will make the album nor is there a title yet, but you can expect the album before the end of the year and there are plans for Pearl Jam to tour. Soundgarden came to town last week to make their first ever live appearance on US national TV. The Garden performed two songs, current single Pretty Noose and Burden In My Hand on the season finale for Saturday Night Live. And the presence of Chris Cornell plus guest host Jim Carrey, a big fan of the band, made the show worth catching. After the programme, Soundgarden and Kerry both attended a Saturday Night Live party at the Rockefeller Center. The TV appearance capped a week of hectic New York activity for the band, who also turned up on MTV's 120 Minutes program. And guitarist Kim Tull and bassist Ben Shepard still found time to visit the legendary Yankee Stadium 
to see their beloved Seattle Mariners play baseball. And finally this week we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Seattle, a tale of two cities. That's what you might expect from two very different major magazine features published this week. One reveals a city acknowledged as one of the most pleasant in America. The other, in stark contrast, tells of a place that has become a paradise for heroin addicts. Respected current affairs magazine Newsweek declares, Seems like everyone is moving to the city of Microsoft and post-grunge bands. Its future looks bright, even if the sun ever comes out. Newsweek even runs a 30-strong list of who's who in the Emerald City, which, as well as notable businessmen such as Microsoft computer whiz kid Bill Gates, assorted politicians and sports stars, also features Courtney Love, Eddie Vedder and sub-pop founders Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt. Rolling Stone, on the other hand, sees the other side to the city. Junkie Town screams the headline. Seattle, one junkie tells the magazine it's just another junkie-friendly place. Here there's almost no reason not to use drugs. And while Newsweek reports how people are moving to Seattle for its economic prosperity and attractive landscape, Rolling Stone claims young heroin addicts are equally attracted to uh, the city by their ability to score more easily. There's been conflict for some time between Seattle natives and people who've just moved into the state. The rising price of property here has been blamed on the influx of people from other parts of America. There was even a top-selling car bumper sticker recently which said simply, Californians go home. Soundgarden entered the argument when they premiered their new album Down on the Upside on nationally syndicated radio show The Album Network recently. When a fan asked the boys what they liked most about Seattle, Chris Cornell replied, Well, I grew up here, so for me, it's like I know exactly where all the streets go. I don't really think it's a good place, I think it's a really bad place. And anyone listening to this broadcast should stay exactly where they are. Ben Shepard also tried to dissuade people from moving to Seattle. It rains here a lot. It's got the highest suicide rate in America and parking tickets cost more than anywhere else on the West Coast. It's dreary up here, like Scotland. You have been warned. Stay where you are. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! On location, this week, Jason Arnop joins Fear Factory in the Fun Palace. That's my load right there, grinned Fear Factory guitarist Dino Cazares, pointing at a super lewd Polaroid pic of a young lady's posterior. We're walking towards London's Trocadero Entertainment Complex near Piccadilly Circus, and Dino's providing the entertainment. Oh look, we're here already. Specifically, we're heading for the expansive Fun Palace arcade section, which certainly suits Dino, singer Burton C. Bell and drummer Raymond Herrera. Raymond works in LA's Game Dude store when he's not out on the road and video games are his number one hobby. The Fun Palace has had plenty of new games installed since last year and the first to catch our eye is a seriously amazing shoot 'em up called Time Crisis. Dino's there, like a rat up a drain pipe, pumping rapid fire lead and yelling, die motherfucker. It's a quid per killing spree, but adds the feature of a foot pedal which allows you to duck down behind things or attack. Utterly special. I love what this shooting shit pants Dino as he sends another 10 computer bastards to hell. There's new stuff all the time. Next thing, there'll be virtual gang warfare, Compton versus East LA. Burton, meanwhile, is looking sheepish in the face of all this blinding technology. What's my favourite game, he considers. You want to know? Honestly, it's pinball. Realising he must maintain the image of being a devout cyberhead, Bert tries out a virtual skiing machine and ends up satisfied, even though he's never skied before. Particularly impressive 
is the spinning fan which blows air in the singer's face, compounding the illusion of hurtling down a snowy hill. Perhaps a device cunningly designed to break the player's legs would complete the overall illusion. No one is quite prepared for how satanic the dodgem cars are. Collisions hurt like fuck, particularly with dodgy Dino, blind Burt and reckless Raymond on the track. Dino limps out groaning my balls and Burt pleads whiplash. I swear my knee will never be the same again. After a succession of car and bike races, it's time for the factory trio to test a fearsome flight simulator, which spins people every which way but loose. Raymond plays first and loves it. He does not throw up. How about a drum kit like that then? Yeah, he beams, just like Tommy Lee. With Fear Factory being the futuristically minded band they are, it's only right and proper for them to try out the latest in true virtual reality before they leave. Dino and Raymond step up to have masks clamped onto their heads, making for some comic moments when their hair gets entangled. So after walking around a virtual maze, destroying virtual enemies with their virtual guns, Fear Factory head off to get virtually drunk in Planet Hollywood. Dino gets his picture taken next to a model of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator's metal patron saint, and Bert discovers a great cocktail called the Exorcist, the colour pea soup green, and you wondered why his singing sounded so demonic. We now come to this week's kind of cover stars, sort of, I don't know, they're not the exact cover stars, but I guess this is the main piece of the magazine. Anyway, the Great Southern Trend Kill. It's the hottest tour of the year in America. Ozzy Osbourne, Sepultura, and type of negative on one bill. Stefan Shirazi joins him in front of 16,000 hysterical Texans at the very minute Ozzy and the Seps agree to play Donington. Ozzy Osbourne's thick Brummy accent is booming around the walls of his dressing room at the Austin State Fairgrounds in Texas. I had to tell myself, Ozzy, you're acting like a spoiled fucking idiot. Go back to your home country and play a gig in England, he is saying. So Donington, I'm coming and I'm going to blow the doors off. Just go crazy for me and I'll go even crazier back. Yes, just in case you hadn't already noticed, Ozzy Osbourne will co-headline the main stage at Donington 96 with another group of rock legends, the reformed and fully made up Kiss. He finally told his wife and manager Sharon that yes, okay, he would do the gig two minutes before he went on stage this evening. I'd agree to do it so long as I don't have to close the show, he says. I headlined Donington in 1986 and I didn't enjoy it. But with the fucking band I have now, I can't wait. The fucking band he has now is made up of Faith No More drummer Mike Puffy Borden, infectious grooves bassist Rob Trigilio and guitarist Joe Holmes, and they are most definitely the business. Ozzy has also ensured that Sepultura, one of the bands who are currently supporting him on the biggest US tour of 96, will be joining him at Donington, which is nice. The fairgrounds are set at the foot of an enormous dusty hillside. For tonight's show, there's a vast festival-style stage at one end and 16,000 people crammed into every other inch of available space. In America, Ozzy Osbourne's Retirement Sucks Tour is the hottest ticket on the road. In the past year, Ozzy has sold out bigger venues and played to more people than Green Day or Red Hot Chili Peppers, or Rancid, or any other hit multi-million selling band you care to mention. The people who are coming to see the ex-Black Sabbath singer and former rock madman are a hugely mixed bunch. Here, old Sabbath fans with their beer bellies and scars rub shoulders with a whole new generation of younger fans. In fact, over half the audience at the fairgrounds are still in their teens. All of them treat the Retirement Sucks show like ultimate rock and roll party, where they can drink beer and yell themselves senseless without worrying whether they're looking cool or not. 
There's also guaranteed to see two cutting edge support bands as well. Ozzy has a history of taking smart young bands out on the road with him and helping them to break America. He did it for Metallica in 1983, calling the Deftones on the last leg of the Retirement Sucks track and Filter and Corrosion of Conformity will join him for the summer dates. But right now, Sepultura and Type of Negative are doing the honours. The Brazilian quartet particularly are going down a storm. They're going on before Type of Negative simply because the latter have sold more records in the US so far. But Sepultura's new album Roots stormed into the upper reaches of the Billboard chart and they're getting the more hysterical response from the crowds almost every night. When the sets, Rob Tregilio and myself emerge for a backstage game of football before the fairgrounds gig, every kick is punctuated with by the crowd roaring Sepultura as they begin filling into the venue. And there are already 11,000 people inside the venue when Sepultura take to the stage for their crisp half hour set. They throw themselves into every one of Max Cavalera's growls and the band's brutal riffs and then thousands of them troop off to buy Sepultura t-shirts. If this tour is a barometer of their future, then Sepultura should wear sunglasses. This is the second time they've been invited to open for Ozzy, the uh, last time being in 1992. Now, as then, the atmosphere is relaxed and friendly and free from the usual rock tour bullshit. Sepultura are given generous use of all available facilities and their enormous roots backdrop is hung from the stage on every date. The whole tour, with everyone on it, it's like a family, says Sep's main man Max Cavalera. Ozzy's a great guy and the whole vibe is amazing. Which is why, when you mention Donington to Max, he grins like a shark and insists he can't wait. Typo Negative are rather more reclusive, whereas Sepultura are out and about all the time. Typo and their imposing frontman Peter Steele are quiet and stiff, yet briskly polite. Steele himself seems to be slightly nervous being around Ozzy Osbourne, but he's never anything less than respectful. On stage, Typo Negative turn in a tight 45 minute show built around their hugely successful Bloody Kisses album and thick with testosterone and ethereal gothic melodies. They have a good time in front of 16,000 Texans, but it's clear that the crowd haven't exhausted themselves during Sepultura's set are recharging their batteries before Ozzy arrives. In his Austin hotel suite after another triumphant two-hour show, Ozzy Osbourne is in a buoyant mood. He may be one of the world's greatest and self-confessed warriors, but these days, Ozzy is a rejuvenated man. I put it down to maturity, professionalism and having the right people around me, he says. I mean, no disrespect to any of the other players I've had. They've all been great, but I've never had a band that's as focused as this one. Indeed, Trujillo may still be a member of Infectious Grooves and Borden will start work on a new Faith No More album at the end of the summer, but Ozzy is determined to record with them and Holmes. Michael Borden is fucking unbelievable, he gasps. He's like Led Zeppelin's John Bonham. When he hits a drum, he hits a fucking drum. And Robert Trujillo and Joe Holmes are both unbelievable, so I'm having this amazing experience. Ozzy is equally proud that on average the Retirement Sucks Tour has been selling 15,000 tickets a night without the blessing of America's self-styled trendsetters MTV. The shows with this lineup have been fucking amazing, he says, and that's why the tour has been so fucking great because it's been through word of mouth. Fuck MTV. I always remember long careers being built by word of mouth, and word must be spreading about how great this fucking tour is as a whole. I mean, you think back to the mid-80s when they were the Poisoned and the Cinderella's and all these fucking bands selling millions of records and I'm going, fuck me, how am I going to survive this? Well, here I am, still going strong. Yes, Ozzy Osbourne is old enough to be your dad, but he's still the greatest showman in rock. 
That's why he's idolized by your Metallicas and Sepulturas, and that's why more people in America want to see him than absolutely anybody else. I just thank the Lord that I can still do it, he says. I mean, tonight's show was one of my favorite gigs of my whole career. It was fucking magic. There's one thing about Ozzy Osbourne. I broke away from one of the biggest bands in the world. I did it on my own, but I'm still doing it as good as ever. At the fairgrounds, Ozzy tears into his own body with his fingernails, repeatedly fires two well-placed water cannons into the audience and the security guards with a manic leer on his face and generally jumps and screams and cackles like a demented 10-year-old. It's an awesome sight. Last week, some fucking dick said to me, don't you think uh, 47 years old is a bit too old to be doing this, Ozzy says later. He didn't know what he was fucking talking about. You'll see for yourselves at Donington Park on August the 17th. Beaver, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives, and the first gig reviewed this week is Ash at the Guildhall Southampton Thursday, May the 16th. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, this one gets 5 out of 5. These are high times for those cheeky Ash boys. In the week that their debut album 1977 went straight into the UK chart at number 1, the trio kicked off the biggest tour of their lives. Apparently, their next day off is six months away. Everybody wants a piece of ash these days and it's plain to see why. They're fucking ace. Simple as that. A few readers have written to Kerrang in the past few weeks moaning about ash being featured in the magazine. Some people reckon ash are more Britpop than Britrock and they shouldn't be in Kerrang, let alone on the cover. Those people don't think much of the Manic Street Preachers either or the presidents of the USA or anyone else with a degree of pop sus in their music for that matter. What's the problem? Whichever way you look at it, these are some of the most exciting rock bands around. Right now, there are few better places to be than an Ash gig. There's a huge buzz about them, and what better way to kick off the show than lose control with its frantic, pumped-up riff and faintly ridiculous lead guitar squiggles. The inevitable mass pogoing ensues. The excitement turns to full-on hysteria when Tim Wheeler sings the first line of Girl From Mars. It's almost too much for two teenage girls who can't stop bouncing up and down as they run to the front of the stage to drool over Tim. Girl From Mars is surely the best single of the past year, but Ash have so many top tunes, even at this early stage of their career, that they could afford to toss it away in the first few minutes. As if to emphasize this point, they follow Girl From Mars with their most recent smash hit, Goldfinger. No doubt about it, Ash have got this post-Nirvana punky pop thing completely and utterly sussed. A few critics have said that Ash are a weak live band, but if this showing is anything to go by, they're ready to knock the cynics for six. Asher fun, pure and simple. And although Tim is stuck behind the mic for much of the time, bassist Mark Hamilton does enough work for the two of them. He is evidently mad for it. Ash finish up with Angel Interceptor, their most perfect pop song, and a couple of noisy oldies. They encore with three songs guaranteed to get the audience pogoing. Dark Side, Light Side, Petrol, and the irrepressible Kung Fu with its classic Oh Jackie Chan hook. Fantastic stuff. If you're still undecided about Ash, catch them on this tour because love them or loathe them, their time is now. The next review this week is for Curb Dog at King's Cross Splash Club, London on Thursday, May the 16th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 5 out of 5. Whoa, kill Kenny. No, actually, we're from Liechtenstein. Curb Dog's Cormac Battle is trying to pull the wall over our eyes. This is the first show of the band's current fortnightly residency at this intimate venue and the Kilkenny lads are splitting sides and busting heads. 
Having spent last summer in LA with hotshot producer GG Garth Richardson, rating into Machine Jesus Lizard, Cormac Battle and Co. have emerged with fistfuls of stunning new material which render their previous Metallica meets Seattle comparisons impotent. Tonight they're gagging to show off their new stripped down and svelte form, and it's a glorious sight. In their short set, Cub Dog proved that they've really found their feet in terms of songwriting. The departure of second guitarist Billy Dalton hasn't diminished the crunch factor one iota, and now the granite grinds are 100% improved. Suffused with delicious melodies and tremendous pacing and dynamism, JJ's song armed with an obscene wealth of choruses sees battle in defiant mood barking out go ahead Sue like a stressed out coked up attorney. Sally comes on like Nirvana covering Big Black, utilising the traditional whisper to raw routine as it builds from a crisp strum into pile driving riffing. Mexican Wave is also marvellously infectious, boasting a huge guitar line which lifts and twists as it cuts deep. All three sound like singles in waiting. That's not to say that the older Curb Dog material pales in comparison though, and the Mad Frick crowd lap up the more familiar blasters. Cleaver, and the acerbic dry riser emit a ferocious roar. Their mean riffs re-energized and full of bile. End of Green is still the darkest slice of post-grunge pounding this side of Addison Chains. Bassist Colin Fennelly bouncing around with a smile a thousand miles wide as he chugs out those low grooves. But ultimately, it's the new stuff which lodges deepest in the memory and it's this which guarantees that the dogmen will be snapping and snarling everywhere in 96. Cub Dog are now biting harder than ever. Don't just take our word for it. Go see for yourself next time. Ah, go on, go on. The next review is for ACDC, supported by the Wild Hearts at the Arena Geneva on Sunday, May the 12th. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, this gets 4 out of 5. The best of something old and the best of something new. That's tonight's story. ACDC are enduring giants, an unstoppable live phenomenon fronted by one of the most legendary rock guitarists ever to have duck walked across a stage. The Wild Hearts are the bright, shiny spearhead of a new generation of bands, a movement gleefully christened Brick Rock. On an enormous stage in Geneva, both bands are able to demonstrate a wealth of energy, aggression and showmanship. Despite being limited to a 30-minute set, the Wild Hearts offer a brief, enlivening glimpse of the many musical colours at their disposal. My Baby is a Headfuck glistens with venom, its boisterous melody delivered at manic pace. The clever fusing of pop and metal that makes I Wanna Go Where The People Go so irresistible proves every bit as potent in the live environment, while Everlone allows this polite, curious audience to appreciate just what fine musicians these British upstarts are. 90s stylistic fads have had no effect on the ACDC juggernaut. Geordie Shrieker Brian Johnson might be 50 next year, but he shows no sign of slowing down, and Angus Young will be shaking his tiny frame until he finally kills over. It was his familiar grimace that adorned the very first Kerrang! cover back in June 81, and the elephantine sound emanating from Young's guitar in those days has changed little over the years. ACDC have never toyed with their format, and although the quality of their albums dried up years ago, current LP Ball Breaker is testimony to that. There is still uh, little to top them as a live spectacle. The amount of on-stage gadgetry in use tonight stirs memories of the days when major rock concerts amounted to massive theatrical spectacles. ACDC have a 40-foot tall crane replete with demolition ball, which smashes down a mock wall at the start of the set, revealing the five band members ready to tear straight into Back in Black. It's a hysterical scene. Outrageously dated, but totally engrossing. 
Later, Brian Johnson leaps onto the demolition ball, singing ball breaker while suspended 30 feet over the crowd's head. As he returns to the stage for Highway to Hell, Angus shoots through a manhole in the floor surrounded by tongues of flames. During Let There Be Rock, Angus suddenly appears in the middle of the hall, soloing from a platform near the mixing desk. The place erupts as the guitarist is carried back to the stage on the shoulders of a seven-foot bodyguard. The audience raises their hands towards him. Angus grins in fraternity, the sweat stinging his eyes. The traditional cannons salute the faithful before they spill out into Geneva streets. If only for a few hours a night, heavy metal is alive and well. And finally this week for live reviews, we have Sensefield live at the Borderline London on Tuesday, May 21st. Reviewed by Claire Douse, this one gets 5 out of 5. Occasionally, very occasionally, a completely unknown band will sneak out an album so astonishing the whole world talks about it for months afterwards. Killed for Less, the debut LP released by Californian Quintet Sensefield almost two years ago was just such an album. Crammed with shimmering melodies, impassioned lyrics and taut dynamics, it caused an entire industry to prick up its ears. Two years on, and Sensefield are poised to release second album Building, a 13-track giant at least as passionate and moving as that debut. Now transplanted to a major label and almost spilling off this tiny wooden stage, they look unstoppable. Kicking in with a towering today and tomorrow, Sensefield set out their melodic hardcore stall from the off. Pick any part of tonight's almost hysterically received set from shimmering current single Overstand to sprawling closer Sage, and you'll understand exactly why Sensefield are something special. The former rides in on the sharpest chorus of the summer, the latter glides off on seamless harmonies, both performed with mesmerising fervour by lanky frontman Jonathan Bunch. Aside from Bunch, the rest of Sensefield aren't the most demonstrative band you'll ever see. But with songs of this quality, you don't need to dangle from the ceiling to impress. Guitarist Rodney Sellers and Chris Evenson peel off sparkling chord after aching riff with almost unconscious ease. The awesome sight unseen, voice, shallow grave, these are songs you can laugh to, cry to, lose your mind to. This, as Kerrang is very fond of saying, is the shit. Absolutely. Oh yes. Ha 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 ha. Something strange is going on in Seattle. The world's most miserable band are laughing. They are Soundgarden, and as an unsuspecting Morat finds out, they've only gone and started doing Beavis and Butthead impressions as well. It's Friday night in Seattle, and Soundgarden's Chris Cornell and Kim Tile are doing Beavis and Butthead impressions. Penis. Scrotum. Cool, says the famously bug-eyed guitarist. Soundgarden rock. Yes. The four men, who appear to be so utterly grim-faced that they earn the collective nickname Frown Garden, are not allergic to a right old laugh after all. But then, you'll know as much when you get an earful of Ty Cobb, the breakneck punk rock tune on the band's unreasonably brilliant new album Down on the Upside. Not only does Ty Cobb feature an hilarious mandolin duel between Cornell and bassist Ben Shepard, it also uses the F word an admirably indecent amount of times. So you'd be wrong to call Soundgarden a miserable bunch of bastards after all. You'd also be sadly misguided if you thought that Soundgarden ponced around Seattle acting like rock stars. If it weren't for the gold discs hanging on the walls of their plush management offices, you wouldn't know they were even in the band, let alone one of the biggest rock bands in the world today. Nope, even after selling 5 million copies of their last album Super Unknown, 
Soundgarden remained remarkably unaffected by their own success. If anything, the world has changed around them. On the rare occasions they go to a rock club for instance, the DJ will immediately start playing their music. It's totally weird, says Cornell. You realise that somebody's standing there watching you and they're trying to get a reaction and some people will come up and start being really rude to you because they think you'll think it's cool. Kurt Cobain used to get that too. Today, even after a week of doing press to promote Down on the Upside, their mood is friendly. While Tal and Cornell go cool and ha ha, Shepard flicks through the gig guide of the local rag, the stranger looking for action. He pauses to sneer at an advert for Laser Varna and the Varna tribute band, then turns the page. LA punk legends Fear, whose classic I Don't Care About You Soundgarden covered a few years ago for a Radio 1 session, are playing a show in town tonight. Ben says he'd go, but he doesn't like the owner of the club. Tal says he'd go too, but being a brown-skinned rock star in a club there uh, might be a few Nazi skinheads is probably not a good idea. The fact is, Soundgarden don't go to many gigs. Talk to any of Seattle's grunge kids and they'll laugh or whine about how little Soundgarden has seen, but most of them just don't know where to look. Cornell, Tal, Shepard and drummer Matt Cameron hang out with the same friends in the same places as they always have. Ben will go to his regular haunt, the OK Cafe, where he'll drink and play pool with his friends. Usually quiet and intent, but occasionally volatile and even dangerous, Ben doesn't get hassled too much at the OK Cafe. Kim, the philosopher in a band of philosophers, will visit friends or sit up all night watching sport on TV, and he'll call his friend Brad later to talk about basketball. Cornell and Cameron will also hook up with friends or ride their motorbikes. The former can be painfully softly spoken and takes a long time to relax around people he doesn't know. The latter is possibly the most outgoing member of the band and also the most normal. The four of them have known each other for more than a decade. Tull, who had moved to Seattle from Chicago and Cornell can still recall their first meeting. We didn't like each other, says Chris. I believe we met for a mutual friend, says Kim. I didn't like him either, says Chris. Chris was really quiet and didn't open up much, so it took a while to get to know him, recalls Tyle. Chris worked in the same coffee shop as Andrew Wood, the late Mother Love Bone singer. Tyle studied philosophy and worked in the Department of Corrections Juvenile Wing, where he was mistaken for an inmate by the rest of the staff. Ben Shepard was a friend of Tyle's younger brother, while Matt Cameron had left San Diego for Seattle with Grotus's Adam Tanner and quickly became a face on the city's music scene. Ben was 12 years old. He was this cute, kind of lanky kid and he was learning how to play guitar, says Kim. He knew a couple of chords and he had kind of a punk rock haircut. He was like a punk rock toy. When I first met Matt, he was already the best drummer in town, says Cornell. He seemed very confident and well-adjusted. Indeed, only Cornell seems to have reinvented himself over the years, even if this has simply meant cutting off his long hair and keeping his shirt on for photo sessions, see panel. Once held as the grunge pin-up Cornell, is now seen first and foremost as a brilliant musician. And it's music, as opposed to money or fame, which has always been Soundgarden's driving force. They don't find it difficult to keep motivated just because they are now extremely wealthy. In fact, they seem to be almost embarrassed about being wealthy. Soundgarden are not Flash. They do not drive a fleet of Ferraris or host wild orgies in their rockstar mansions. Kim was the last member of the band to buy his own house, and he's almost apologetic that it's so big. A little bit, he nods. It was bigger than anything I'd ever lived in. I'd stay up all night because I felt very vulnerable, like I was sleeping in a park with walls around it. It took me a while to not feel bad about having money. My parents were both immigrants and they didn't have a lot of money, so my dad was very meticulous. I still feel bad about not finishing everything on my plate. Is it awkward having friends who are skint? 
Sometimes, he says, but my close friends don't freak out. It's not like Kim's my rich friend. We've known each other 20 years and I'm still working in this shitty job making 11 bucks an hour. There are some people who might feel envious, but they're big guys and they know I've been doing this a long time. They remember when I was unemployed. If we got rich overnight like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, that might have freaked them out more, but they saw all the effort and time we put into it. My friends are cool about it, adds Chris, but then I gave them all motorcycles. One thing that's cool about having money is sharing it with your friends. Kim spends the next 20 minutes analyzing the concept of vast wealth, but since none of us are ever likely to experience it or understand the word Tal says when he's in full flow, we just nod politely and let him get on with it. Soundgarden will leave their normal lives behind in Seattle when they hit the road again in the near future. But when they do arrive in the town near you, don't bother asking them to leap about on stage just like they used to. It's kind of hard to jump around when you're playing Black Old Sun, says Kim defensively. At one point, it was something that we naturally did, continues Cornell. But after a number of years, you start to feel like you're acting. All those people who criticise us for not jumping around so much should shut the fuck up. And when they come to our shows, they should jump around and entertain us for a while. It's our turn, he says, slipping into a, a spot on Beavis and Butthead voice. You know, look at all those people jumping around. That's really cool. You guys rock. Which is where we came in. Feedback. And we start this week with the letter of the week. Last night, I saw the Smashing Pumpkins at the point in Dublin and they were amazing. The mosh pit was chaotic, so the band tried to calm the crowd by playing a few mellow songs. Unfortunately, it didn't work. People were being trampled. A 17-year-old girl from Cork was badly crushed. Both Darcy and Billy Corgan asked the crowd to chill, but we were so high at that stage that um, people just kept pushing forward. The Pumpkins had to cut the set short because they were too upset about the girl's injuries to continue. The girl died this afternoon. Her death scared me. It was really tragic and unnecessary. I'm the same age as her. The dead girl could have been any of us. I think the Smashing Pumpkins deserve credit for trying to calm us down. I also want him to understand that it's not that we didn't care. We just didn't know how serious the situation was. When the gig was stopped, I saw very little anger among the crowd, only sadness and worry about the girl involved. We all walked out on that gig depressed and in silence. Thank you. Pumpkins fan, Dublin. I'm completely gutted after hearing the news about a 17-year-old girl being crushed to death at the Smashing Pumpkins gig in Dublin. The band was supposed to play in my hometown of Belfast the next night, but they cancelled the show. I know they had to do this, but please, Smashing Pumpkins, reschedule the date. Come back and play Belfast. It's not a war zone like the whole of the world seems to think. Jev. Last night, I saw God. He wears silver pants and a long-sleeved t-shirt with zero on it. He's bald and he sings like an angel. He's the king of rock. He's Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins, and he is God. A very smashed pumpkin, Merseyside. How about Kareng stage in a Brit Rock all day at Finsbury Park would be a good venue. You could have Terravision Therapy and the Manics all playing on the same stage. It's about time we had our own thing that American groups can't butt in on. Mick Islington. To Jim from Durham, who slagged off Ash. You are obviously a bit of an ass if you like those Pearl Jam rip-off artists Silverchair. Ash are far better. Silverchair? I've heard better sounds coming out of my own ass. Pissed off Ash fan. P.S. If Ash are reading this, the new album's great. I went to the White Zombie gig at Brixton and something Rob Zombie said confused me and probably loads of other zombie fans. He said that Kerrang said a lot of bullshit about the band hating each other and being on the verge of splitting up. Now, do I believe what he says or do I believe Kerrang? Kerrang always seems to be pretty genuine and reliable, but this is fucking me off. 
How about setting the record straight? Matt Brown, Southampton. If Rob Zombie says the band aren't splitting up, they aren't splitting up. However, he did tell Kareem Stefan Shirazi that White Zombie wouldn't last forever. So who knows what might happen next. Hopefully, Rob's comments at Brixton mean that he's made his mind up to keep the band together. We'll keep you posted, editor. I think Dave the non-violent punk is missing the point about individual interpretation of punk rock. Dave obviously wasn't around during the nice beginning of punk when Buzzcocks fans trashed the Brighton top rank after the band didn't play an encore, or the Clash's gig in Crawley which was marred by fighting football fans. Back in the late 70s there were political marches, football violence, Ted's against punks, punks against skins, skins against mods, there were signs of the times. Mate, the second wave of punk bands, the exploited foreskins, blitz, etc. didn't promote violence. They simply observed and sang about what was happening. War on the terraces by the Cockney Rejects, for example. It wasn't just punk gigs. Football matches and scar and rockabilly gigs all suffered from the general undercurrent of disorder running through society. Metal being the exception. I still go to see the old punk bands as well as the new crop, while also supporting my local footy team. And guess what? No violence. Times have changed. Oh yeah, the exploited beat the bastards is the best thing they've done in years. If any of the current million selling new bands can't match this album, I may go back down the front. But until then, see you at the bar. The Seagull with the Mohican, Brighton. Uh, no violence at Brighton FC. Where were you during the riot at the end of last season? Football editor. In the Crane Challenge with Terrorvision's Lee Mark Lou, you asked, what is the smallest country in Europe? Lee was quite correct in saying it was Vatican City. This is the right answer, not your answer of Monaco. Get your facts right. We've got Quizmaster Liz Evans a week's wages as punishment. Editor. Ill communication. What a load of... You're in a car park in London. You're standing in front of a large truck and you're hearing Metallica's new album for the very first time. Now, when you're done, step over to the bar and tell Jason Arnott if it's brilliant or bollocks. Where is everyone? It's 5.30pm, we're at the Adrenaline Village Club in Chelsea and Metallica's sixth album load is about to be played for the first time in public. You'd expect the entire country to be queuing up, genitals swollen, but there are only a few hundred people milling around, at most. You could drive a small car through here blindfolded and you wouldn't hit anybody. Indeed, the main area resembles a large empty car park. At the far end stands a large white articulated lorry with Metallica banners draped over one side. This is the Metalli truck, a DJ is standing on top of it playing Metallica Classics, Master of Puppets album and occasionally telling people to stay cool or get thrashing. Nearby, there's a massive bungee jump crane from which you can throw yourself for 50 quid. There's also a bar and a table from which free samples of Black Death vodka are being handed out. The vodka has been mixed with Red Devil energy drink which quite frankly we don't like at all. Do I like Metallica, says Mark, the bloke serving in one of the Mr. Whippy vans. Well, we did that Monsters of Rock thing last year and they sounded pretty good then. I like watching people piss in their glasses and chuck them on stage. Mark is a bit of a geezer. He has the Coke logo emblazoned across the front of his t-shirt, with the legend Just Snort It written beneath. Luckily, the two police officers standing close by don't seem to have spied this, or they'd be confiscating his scoops double quick. Good afternoon, officers. Are you Metallica fans? Do we look like Metallica fans, chuckles Officer 1. But we asked to be here, says Officer 2. It gets us out of doing real police work, and my sister's a fan, she'd love this. The boys in blue reveal that the projected crowd attendance for this evening was 70,000. It looks like 700 may be closer to the truth. 
This clearly does not mean Metallica's popularity has waned, but an insider admits that the payback party was something of a last minute arrangement and not enough people are aware it's happening. The DJ is now blasting out 1990s Black Album, it's our cue to mingle with the Metalli fans. Young Hayley Prentice runs the Milton Keynes chapter of the Metallica fan club, to whom she is known under the cryptic codename Ackham Hetfield. She's not only mad about Metallica, but as mad as a goldfish which voluntarily leaps from its bowl. The album's gonna kick ass, she enthusiastically decides, eyes gleaming. Hayley turns to display the picture of James Hetfield she has painted onto the back of her leather jacket. If she doesn't like Load, then no one will. Her friend David Harris is more cautious. I've read the reviews, so I know it will be different, he says. After the last album, it's hard to say what it'll be like, adds Tony from Reading, but I don't want another black album. I'm sure it'll be bold and strange, says his mate Neil. I just hope it's not a step back. Let's see. Ain't My Bitch, the opening track on Load, finally thunders out from the Metalli truck at 7pm. The diehards at the front are doing the old windmill headbanging routine. And so is Akam Hetfield. Mind. Noses are wrinkled at 2x4. It's too bluesy, yells a bloke called Lawrence in my ear. Several people have simply ended up here by following the music from afar. Garbage's UK press officer Rob Jefferson just happened to be riding past on his bike. Batsy resident Dave is here with the wife and kids. We heard it from the park over the road, he shouts. It sounds alright. Dave's children, however, look as if they're in agony with their pudgy fingers shoved in their ears. Don't worry, assures Mrs. Dave. They love it really. Madam, they do not. But the album continues. Each track gets different responses from people, from disappointed to ecstatic, apart from the country and western tune which no one seemed to like. One lad is so shocked by it that he has to be stretched out. After Load is finished, there is a sudden flurry of excited crowd movement as Lars Ulrich and Kurt Hammett appear on the Metalli truck. They both grab a microphone. Glad you like the album, says Kirk a tad presumptuously. The hapless Ulrich, meanwhile, is verbally abused for his short hair. Tragically, he also states that Hetfield and bassist Jason Newstead are currently in Australia, hanging out with all the convicts. Lars and Kirk are then escorted off to a press conference, where they'll be asked lots of silly questions. And their album, Hayley Acklam, Hetfield, um, Prentice, naturally proclaims it to be a work of art. So does Paul from Ballinair in Ireland. But Hayley's mate David isn't so sure. I'm going to have to think very seriously about whether or not I'm going to buy it, he admits. Hayley instructs him to fuck off. Utter genius or a load of bollocks. We shall see. Singles, and the singles this week are reviewed by Paul Elliott. And just a small reminder, if you would like to hear the singles of the week, then there is a Spotify playlist that is put together by friend of the podcast, Mark. And you can find that on the uh, description of this podcast. Or you can also find that on um, the Kerrang Back Issues Twitter page and Instagram page. Uh, we'll be posting that up there. That up there. Almost got it out. Uh, yeah, for your listening delectation. We begin this week with the single Machine Head by Bush. This gets 4Ks. This is the best way to hear Bush. One song at a time. Their material tends to be a bit samey over the course of a whole album, so songs like Machine Head work better in isolation. Machine Head is also proof that Bush's huge US success is no fluke. This is cool and stylish post-grunge rock. ACDC with their single Cover You In Oil. This gets 2Ks. If this was the first ACDC record you'd ever heard, you'd wonder what all the fuss is about. Cover You In Oil is a workaday boogie plod 
with a predictably sweaty, palmed lyric. Much better is Ballbreaker, the title track from ACDC's current LP. Hard and mean like the best of the band's legendary 70s output. Mean Machine by Sugar Ray. This one gets 3Ks. Sugar Ray should have made a bigger splash by now. Their wave it in your face party rock oozes crossover appeal, singer Mike McGrath has got the girls choking for it and there's a bird from Baywatch on the cover of the album. Maybe they'll take off when they tour here with Dog Eat Dog. Mean Machine is cool, but check out the cover of Rock Wildman Ted Nugent's Wango Tango for some serious bozo action. Placebo with their single 36 Degrees. This gets 4Ks. A bouncy, balmy little number from a band who are quite obviously a few cards short of a full deck. Placebo are one part American to two part Swedish, and on these three tracks alone, their music ranges from post-grunge pop to the fake Eastern vibes of Harry Krishna. On top of this, they have a singer, Brian Molko, who sings like he's been inhaling helium. Weird. Hum with their single The Pod. This gets 3Ks. Bored looking Americans with a neat line in post-nevermind lo-fi alternative rock. The Pod is an intriguing title and an impressive noise, but not a great song. There's still a reek of the garage about Hum, which will endear them to the sub-pop following, if nothing else. Plasticity by Frontline Assembly. This one gets 3Ks. If hanging around dimly lit clubs listening to banging electronic music is your idea of a top night out, this could be your kind of thing. Canadian techno noise bods Frontline Assembly are more in tune with dance culture than the likes of Ministry or Nine Inch Nails. Plasticity is too heavy for the Ibiza set, but in a rock club, it will sound full on hypnotic. Joyrider with their single Another Skunk Song. This gets 4Ks. Like Honeycrack, Joyrider are brick rock strugglers. Both bands have released a couple of brilliant singles, but neither is really grabbing any headlines yet. Maybe Another Skunk Song might do the trick for Joyrider. It's what they do best. Perky, punky pop reminiscent of late 70s geeks, the undertones. Rude Awakening by Prong. This gets 3Ks. Prong have always been fiercely heavy, but up till now, frontman Tommy Victor inexplicably mixed sleek power riffing with terrible heavy metal guitar fills. The latter have been dropped here, and Prong sound cooler for it. Asphalt Rising by Fu Manchu. This gets 3Ks. Fu Manchu are another bunch of stoners who want to sound just like Sabbath. Asphalt Rising is a glorious racket, but if Caius died on their asses, what chance have these guys got? And the single of the week this week comes from Ammonia with their single Drugs. This gets 4Ks. Ammonia sound like a band destined for very big things. Drugs is an irresistible first single, poppy and grungy in all the right places. These three Aussie dudes are labour mates of Silverchair, but A, they're old enough to have sex legally, and B, they're not obsessed by Pearl Jam. One thing they do have in common with Silverchair is cheesy lyrics, drugs and guns, and there's nothing I'm gonna do about it. Hmm. Ammonia have been touring the US recently, supported by Skunk and Nancy, and they're coming here soon. You're going to love them. Get out of my house. Things can't get much worse for Rocket from the Crypt main man Speedo. He's buggered up his back, he's in agony, and just as he's switching the telly on, our man Meanie comes knocking at his door. Rocket from the Crypt are normally slippery customers. They litter their interviews with so many fictitious anecdotes and blatant falsehoods that it's impossible to know when they're actually telling the truth. But today's Speedo, their spectacularly quiffed frontman, is not in a bullshitting mood. 
Last week, he slipped a disc in his back whilst on stage at the Hollywood Palladium, forcing Rocket from the Crypt to withdraw from the final leg of their high-profile support slot on Rancid's US tour. Speedo is now reduced to couch potato status in the front room of his bungalow in Ocean Beach, San Diego. He's watching the San Diego Padres baseball team glide to victory over this afternoon's opponents. The significance of which apparently far outweighs the importance of the interview I've travelled halfway round the world to procure from him. But wait, here comes a commercial break. In 1989, the San Diego punk scene was at an all-time low ebb. Nothing was fun anymore. Battalion of Saints, the city's most famous sons, had been and gone. Bands from out of town were starting to cross San Diego off their tour itineraries thanks to an increasing amount of gig violence perpetrated, in Speedo's words, by the dumbest people in the universe. Then along comes a new venue, the Shea Cafe, on the local college campus. A bunch of bands like Drive Like Jehu and Anna Miniature coalesce around it. And the golden age of San Diego music is ushered in. Then as now, John Reese was fronting Drive Like Jehu, but when it came to assembling a second band, Reese adopted the moniker Speedo, recruited the world's first punk rock brass section and Rocket from the Crypt were born. The whole idea was to slap something together real fast and have fun, he says. We did try and write good songs, but it was definitely more important to have a party. When we made our first record, that kind of changed everything, because people actually liked it. We didn't realise up to that point that people might think that we were any good. Rocket from the Crypt's debut album, Paint as a Fragrance, was an instant hit on the underground punk rock scene. Their first tour, says Speedo, was a near-death experience, but being locked in a tiny van with your unwashed bandmates and bounced around the country for weeks on end was good character-building stuff. They emerged from it, welded together at the seams, and the Rocket myth began to gather momentum. There's a lot of mythologizing to be done about Rocket from the Crypt, nod Speedo. We've been doing it our way for so long, and we've also picked up this gang tag, which has a lot to do with the fact that we wear matching attire when we play. But we don't do that to look like a gang, we do it to look like a band. I just hope people will get the same feeling that I used to get checking out those bands in the 50s and 60s who had a matching wardrobe on stage. It was something you could only wish to be part of, and that's what we gravitate to. More and more people want to be a part of the Rocket from the Crypt experience these days. Last year's fantastic limited edition hot charity mini album started the ball rolling in this country. Then, back in January came the scorching Scream Dracula Scream record and their first ever UK gigs, which were uniformly amazing. But then, Speedo had promised that they were purveyors of the finest punk rock show on earth. I think the records do their job, but you really need to come out and see the band play to get the full effect, he says now. Because on the one hand, we're a schlocky rock and roll review, but then there's also something there that's completely honest and straight from the heart. The music that we play and the words that we sing are everything that's so real about us. As long as you grasp that aspect, I think you'll probably understand as much about Rocket from the Crypt as you're ever going to. So Rocket's big band soul punk pan-dimensional rock and roll isn't going to sail over a mainstream audience's heads then. Nah, says Speedo with great certainty. There's still some of that lowest common denominator stuff that people need to feel. The guilty fucking pleasure of the riff. And the Rocket agenda? The musical agenda is really the only one there is. It's the one you end up putting all your time and effort into, he says. Trying to be the best band you can be. That's about as basic as it gets. I think most bands just don't know how to be good, you know? They're too busy watching other people's steps. But if you're on a band, it becomes your life. So you've got to turn it into something that can keep your interest. That's the way Rocket from the Crypt works. We've become the coolest band we can be. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. It's so heavy, it couldn't get off the turntable. 
Albums, and the first album reviewed this week is one that I think a few people have been waiting for, or not. So the first album reviewed this week is Load by Metallica. This one is reviewed by Phil Alexander and this gets 4Ks. Greasier, looser, groovier. That's how drummer Lars Ulrich described Metallica's new album back in April. Since then, everyone but everyone has had an opinion on how Load would or should sound. Whatever the conjecture, the truth is that on a first listen, Load leaves you feeling bewildered. Whereas previous Metalli platters were meticulously pieced together in the studio, this album sees the world's greatest metal band stretching out and experimenting as they go. That's not to say that there's any pandering to the alternative nation here. If anything, Metallica have dug deeper into the motherload of heaviness, taking their cues from the same sources that inspired the likes of Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, and tipping their hats to more contemporary acts such as Danzig and Alice in Chains. While in the past, guitarist Kirk Hammett may have found the need to keep his blues licks locked in the rehearsal room, on load, he lets them shine. Whereas James Hetfield kept his love of country music hidden under his Stetson, here on the likes of Mama Said and Ronnie, he gets down to some southern fried picking. Even Ulrich himself is willing to ride the beat rather than drive it, bouncing off Jason Newstead's bass rather than smothering it. In short, Metallica have opened up their Pandora's box of influences and let their individual talents breathe. The end result is almost too much to take in one sitting. Several spins later and you find yourself in fraud. Amazingly enough, the first two tracks are the most instant but least inspired of the full team. Four Lits Adrenaline Ain't My Bitch is a hoary old blues metal workout with a less than convincing slide solo from guitarist Hammett. 2x4 is a patented Metallica track with a set of backing vocals half inch from Lane Staley and Alice in Chains. Hit track 3, the house to track built and you realise that, thankfully, Metallica have lost none of the ability to write monster tracks. The hook in mouth chorus, that chugging greasy rhythm riff and Hetfield's succinct sound bites, they're all present and correct, underscored by a sense of moody menace. Some weird ambient bits from Hammett and an ace voice box solo. Current single, Eerie Ballad Until It Sleeps, staggers in like an old mate you haven't seen since the last time you got wrecked. Swiftly followed by the stomping King Nothing, the Enter Sandman of the album. This is the track that your local rock disco will be playing well into the next millennium. Hero of the day, a chugging exercise in light and shade peppered with the odd burst of old school thrash gives way to the epic 8 minute and 18 second crescendo of Bleeding Me, a blinder in every sense of the word. The Danzigist blues bluster of Poor Twisted Me is possibly the only downer. Hetfield's howling just managing to save the track from disappearing up its own ass. While the threatening snarl of Cure, the eerie syncopated pace of Fawn Within and the controlled aggression of Wasting My Hate keep the second half of the album motoring. But it's Mama Said and Ronnie that steal the show. The former is an MTV friendly ballad that boasts the aforementioned country picking and some soul scarring lyrics from James. The latter packs a rolling, tumbling 70s ZZ top riff into what could be Metallica's most commercial track to date. In comparison, Album closer, The Outlaw Tom, is less direct and at 9 minutes 49 seconds, somewhat overwrought. For the most part though, Load hits the mark, illustrating the Metallica still tower over the competition with audacity and power. While the odd moment of indulgence may rob the album of a knuckle full of Ks, Load is still THE album by which every release this year will be measured. Proof indeed that Metallica have retained their ability to set the standards and raise the stakes. The next album reviewed this week is Good God's Urge by Paul for Pyros. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, this gets 5Ks. 
At last, Perry Farrell has rediscovered his genius. Many thought that old big nose had lost the plot, but with his second porno for Pyros record, Farrell is about to reclaim his position as one of the most important figures in 1990s rock and roll culture. Sounds pompous, but it really is true. Jane's Addiction, Farrell's former band, were the first platinum selling alt rock group before Nirvana et al. Farrell split the band in 1991 at their creative and commercial peak. Their final bell was the inaugural Lollapalooza tour, the travelling cultural circus that was Farrell's brainchild. After Jane's addiction, expectations of Farrell's next move were high, so he coolly laid low for a year before re-emerging with a new band, Porno for Pyros in 1993. But what a disappointment that first porno album was. Pets was a great tune, but the remainder was art rock bullshit. Perry was still raking in the cash from Lollapalooza, but Porno for Pyros seemed like a dead loss. Until now, that is. Good God's Urge makes you realise why everybody made such a fuss about Perry Farrell in the first place. This is an amazing rock and roll album, strange and beautiful and exotic. It's unlike anything you'll hear this year. Forget all that punk grunge and Brit rock stuff, Porno for Pyros are on another planet. Much of God's is mellow and trippy like the latter half of Ritual De Lo Habitual, the final James album. Opening track, Pauper said, it's languid and psychedelic, and although the tempo lifts occasionally, the bulk of the album follows suit. Kimberly Austin and Barley Eyes are as beautiful as anything Farrell recorded with Jane's Addiction, summertime roles and classic girl included. Best of all is Tahitian Moon, a hazy disjointed surface suicide note that plays out like some weird dream. Sounds pompous again, but this is deep stuff. Terrorvision, it is not. Good God's Urge also sees Farrell reunited, albeit briefly, with ex-Jane's Addiction guitarist Dave Navarro, now of course a Red Hot Chili Pepper. Jane's drummer Stephen Perkins is still with Porno for Pyros too. Perhaps it's the presence of this duo that has helped get him back on track because for the first time in five years, Perry Farrell is going to blow your mind. The next album reviewed is Hooten Free Car with their album Cramp Like a Fox. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets 3Ks. They come from Sunderland and are produced by ex-liverface man Frankie Stubbs. Have a wild guess what they sound like. Yep, this is honest, gritty and unspectacular Husker Do style melodic punk with tunefully gruff vocals, nifty harmonies and guitars which reek of spit, sweat and sawdust. Familiarity might breed contempt, but tunes like Slug and Things are joyously enthusiastic enough to override formulate chord progressions and bog standard rhythms. Sheer with their album Inflection, this gets 3Ks, and this one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan. Cruelly dubbed the Goth Cranberries, young Derry band Sheer could be the missing link between the Pixies, ACDC and Sinead O'Connor. The stop-start dynamism, sublime melodies and concrete riffing of She and Wish You Were Dead show why the quintet are being so highly touted. At its best, Infliction sounds majestic, but Audrey Gallagher's swooning vocals overshadow the songwriting a little too often. A promising beginning, but better things lie ahead. Charts and the number one album this week is Everything Must Go by Manic Street Preachers. Number one in the singles chart is Until It Sleeps Metallica and number one in the indie LPs chart is 1977 by Ash. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Graham Willis of Milton Keynes. Their chart begins 1 Lithium Nirvana, 2 Alive Pearl Jam, 3 Fortline Silverchair, 4 O George Foo Fighters, 5 Today Smashing Pumpkins, 6 Blind Corn, 7 Perseverance Terrorvision, 8 Hot Dog in the Hallway No Effects, 9 Eminent Sleepers Green Day and 10 Sidekick by Rancid. Star Tracks come from Bruce Dickinson. His chart begins 1 Fire Arthur Brown, 2 All Right Now 3 free, free Schools Out uh, Alice Cooper, 4 Silver Machine Hawkwind 
and five goodbye blackberry way by roy woods wizard next week in kerrang back issues a 600th issue special collector's edition kerrang world exclusive john bon jovi interviews joe elliott metallica lars's kerrang scrapbook and out come the punks rancid boots radical in berlin Pantera the Wild Hearts, did they not want to do that? Your favourite band's biggest fashion disasters. Euro 96, footy fun with Reef Therapy, Mannix and more. Terrorvision, Tony Wright, Hospitalised, plus Rage, Slayer, Mannix, Prodigy, Everclear, Bush, Sugar Ray and Biohazard. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I look forward to talking to you all then. Have a good week. Bye for now.